Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of DeFi market structure and capital efficiency. Today on the show, we're talking about Oval, a new DeFi primitive that Hartlamber from UMA is introducing to the world of DeFi's biggest lending markets. Billions of dollars have been liquidated from protocols like Aave, Compound, and MakerDAO over the years, and these liquidations have been extremely inefficiently priced due to reasons, reasons that will be discussed here on the show today. The long arc of DeFi has been one that trends towards capital efficiency, efficient price discovery, and ultimately better quality products for its users. This episode today discusses a new mechanism to further DeFi's maturity on this very important arc. Hazu also joins us on this conversation today to discuss the way that MEV share from Flashbots is a part of this conversation, as well as helping illuminate the further direction that DeFi is going forward as a whole with mechanisms like this. One more part to this conversation that I want to add here that was unsaid in the podcast. This conversation is about bringing mechanisms into DeFi that allows DeFi to leak less value to MEV bots, allowing DeFi customers and users to retain all of that value and also increasing the economic viability of the DeFi app layer on Ethereum and in crypto broadly. This is a transfer of value away from MEV arbitragers to DeFi apps. What this ultimately means is that this is a transfer of value away from ETH validators, the ultimate beneficiaries of MEV and towards the users and customers of DeFi products on the Ethereum app layer. As long been known that the ultimate destination of the DeFi landscape, no matter what chain we're talking about, Ethereum, Cosmos, whatever, is that the value that MEV has will ultimately be retained by the source of that MEV, not by any downstream actors. And the reason for this is obvious. If you're an application that creates MEV, you're also the entity that has the most optionality of directing where that MEV goes and its conditions for capture. So why wouldn't you just capture it for yourself and improve your bottom line and the quality of your product for your users? This early hypothesis has been stated by many in the MEV world, and it's the thing that the Cosmos app chain believers have been chanting about for a while now. And it's being shown to come true within the innovation being discussed today on the podcast. So enough of my table setting. Let's go ahead and get right into the episode with Hart Lamber from Uma and Hazu from Flashbots. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible, especially Kraken, our preferred exchange for crypto in 2024. If you do not have an account with Kraken, consider clicking the links in the show notes to getting started with Kraken today. Kraken knows crypto. Kraken's been in the crypto game for over a decade, and as one of the largest and most trusted exchanges in the industry, Kraken is on the journey with all of us to see what crypto can be. Human history is a story of progress. It's part of us, hardwired. We're designed to seek change everywhere, to improve, to strive. And if anything can be improved, why not finance? Crypto is a financial system designed with the modern world in mind. Instant permissionless and 24-7. It's not perfect and nothing ever will be perfect, but crypto is a world-changing technology at a time when the world needs it the most. That's the Kraken mission, to accelerate the global adoption of cryptocurrency so that you and the rest of the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. Head on over to kraken.com bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to US and US territory customers by Payward Ventures Inc. PVI doing business as Kraken. It's everyone's favorite season in crypto, tax season. And crypto tax is always 
always an absolute headache, especially for all you DGENs out there, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in, the software built for DGENs by DGENs. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on making complex transactions into easy ones, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as a thousand other integrations as well. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Plus, for all the airdrop farmers out there, Crypto Tax Calculator has your back as they are consistently adding support for new and upcoming layer ones, layer twos, and all the airdrops that you're currently farming. 2024 is the year when the DGENs do their crypto taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at CryptoTaxCalculator.io and get a 30% discount with code BANK30. Click the link in the show notes for more information. You know Uniswap, it's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bankless. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap Mobile Wallet for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There's a link in the show notes. Bankless Nation, I'm super excited to introduce you to Hart Lamber, the founder and CEO of UMA. Hart, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Hart, we had you on two years ago, I think, to talk about bridges way back in the day. Uh, it's good to have you back, my man. Yeah, good to be back. Good to see you. And a reoccurring guest on the podcast, well, I guess both are reoccurring, but Hazu's been on a few more times than you, Hart. Hazu, <laughs> uh, strategy lead at Flashbots, as well as just ecosystem researcher and crypto economic enthusiast, Hazu. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, David. Nice to meet you. Hi, Hart. Don't think we've met yet on a podcast, but I'm looking forward to this. I, I like the uh, crypto economic enthusiast uh, moniker. That's a good one. I think that's the right title for Hazu. I think that's the right yeah. title for most people that come on this podcast, but Hazu especially. <laughs> that doesn't make yeah. it very special, David, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the, the lead crypto economic enthusiast okay. that I know. <laughs> my preferred. <laughs> okay, guys, we're going to get into a conversation that I think Bankless listeners will be familiar with, longtime Bankless listeners. Um, this is inside of the subject matter of MEV. Uh, maximally extractable value, minor extractable value, uh, later rebranded to maximally since we no longer have miners in Ethereum. Uh, but we're talking about a specific kind of MEV, which has been dubbed uh, Oracle extractable value. Uh, so I think this just falls inside of the category of MEV, but it's uh, around a certain uh, set of how the MEV arises, which is through oracles. Uh, and this is going to be a conversation that I think talks about uh, the way that applications on Ethereum produce MEV through oracles, uh, the sustainability of applications, the healthiness of the aggregate DeFi applications, uh, a lot of these different subject matters. So it's probably going to be a decently technical episode, uh, but I think we can also make it uh, pretty understandable understandable for people who already know what MEV is. Um, Hart, can I ask you to maybe just set up the context 
uh, of what we are talking about, the the foundations for what's going on. Like like I said, bankless listeners will know what MEV is, uh, but applying it in an Oracle's um, framing might be a little bit new for them. What is the landscape? What is the problem set that we are going to be addressing here on this episode today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we can make it concrete and then maybe generalize it a little bit more too. But um, today, Oracle updates, and let's talk about like Chainlink updates. Chainlink updates uh, drop into the public mempool on Ethereum. Um, Chainlink and price updates. Price updates, correct. Price Chainlink updates. price updates get dropped into the public mempool on Ethereum, and then they get used by DeFi protocols. Um, and if a Chainlink price update triggers a liquidation, if that price update drops below a liquidation target on, on a, a Aave or compound position, um, that liquidation then triggers a bunch of bunch of things, but basically collateral getting sold MEV. and uh, and it triggers MEV. It's it's not dissimilar from a user submitting a Uniswap trade with slippage um, into the public mempool, which we all understand creates MEV and like creates a sandwich attack and creates other things where um, searchers will construct transactions to extract the maximum value possible from uh, that Uniswap transaction. Well, basically, we have the same thing going on with Chainlink price updates, where the Chainlink price update looks very conceptually similar to an unprotected uh, Uniswap uh, transaction with slippage. And it creates MEV that gets leaked and ultimately captured by Ethereum validators. And I believe that the amount of MEV that's captured from Aave compound liquidations can be quite large. I think this probably happens more. This this amount of MEV capture uh, is more when there's times of volatility and probably times of bull markets as well. And really just to set this, sta this stage here, we are talking about MEV. We're talking about MEV. This is MEV. It just uh, We're talking about specifically MEV that happens as a result of price oracle updates which most of DeFi's chain link uh so like ether is at one thousand dollars it drops down to very quickly 950 dollars a bunch of dgens get liquidated but then there is the fight to be the liquidator of uh these positions what heart uh, is there like a, some numbers or some measurements or metrics about like how valuable this mev is like how much value is being squeezed out of these applications yeah totally i mean Estimating MEV uh, is quite difficult, uh, but within like Aave and Compound, we can have a very clear theoretical kind of bound. Um, and the way Aave and Compound work is when a Chainlink update, price update comes in that causes liquidation, uh, Aave and Compound then sell collateral at a discount. And the, the reason why they sell that collateral at a discount is because they really want to make sure the collateral gets sold to keep the protocol healthy. Um, so that discount is between five and 10%, depending on the asset. And if we look back over the history of uh, Aave V2 and V3 and Compound V2 and V3 over the last about two years, uh, we can see that $150 million-ish of liquidation discounts have, have been sold. So there's been liquidations, a billion and a half dollars of liquidations that have caused uh, discounts of about 150 million dollars and that money has been lost to mev um if we zoom out and go a little bit further and look at kind of you kind of think of Aave and compound since their existence i think that number is much bigger it's like quarter million or quarter billion 300 million uh type number uh that has been lost because of liquidations that are are really selling collateral too cheap 
Hazu, I want to get your perspective on what would happen if this uh, were left unchecked. Uh, Hart talked about um, some parameters about collateral ether or maybe less liquid assets being sold at a discount. Maybe you could talk about um, why it's being sold at a discount uh, and what why that's important to the protocol. And then overall, uh, if this version of MEV uh, is left unchecked, Oracle extractable value, like uh, what would happen into the future? Because we all want, you know, Ethereum, DeFi, any DeFi on any chain to be the world's global financial system. Uh, why do we have to solve this problem? Why is it, why is it important? Yeah, so to your to the uh, the first part of your question, so why is it sold at a discount? I think um, Hart actually gave a very good explanation here. So when you want to sell, uh, when you want to buy a token on, on Uniswap and the token is quite volatile, then you don't exactly know what slippage to set, right? And so um, if you set a very tight slippage, then you risk not getting in the next block because maybe the price moves against you, right? And the same is true um, for a lending market. So if they want to sell a token now, they have this trade-off between basically setting a higher slippage, maximizing the chance to get into the next block, uh, or setting a, basically a lower slippage and risking that maybe the... Uh, the price doesn't take place in the first block. Maybe it takes for longer time, right? And so you have this. So it's a, just a protective mechanism that they need to sell this collateral because they must not have bad debt. Yeah. So I mean, this is really a design choice by the protocol itself. I would say. So if you are on Uniswap and trading shit coins, okay. So what's the worst that can happen if you don't get to buy this position now? Okay, you maybe incur some kind of opportunity cost, but the lending market. Um, uh, you could argue has a much higher responsibility to that capital, right? So they uh, manage the, the the money effectively of many different depositors, right? And so if they let someone get away with bad debt, then that that has to bad debt has to be socialized somehow. So uh, in, in the first tranche, probably would go in the first instance, it would probably go to the token holders of that project as a first line of defense. And if, if that doesn't help, then at some point you have to socialize um, the money on uh, depositors effectively, because there's nobody else there, right? In, in crypto, you, you can't, you don't have any legal recourse or anything like that. And so that's why traditionally uh, lending markets have chosen to be very rigid uh, about how fast they want to liquidate uh, in order to minimize the risk that they internalize any of that bad debt either to their token holders or to uh, even to their depositors. And um, I think that paradigm, I guess, is changing a little bit. Um, so, I mean, if you look, if you look kind of uh, at, at the, the slippage that, for example, a protocol like Aave or Compound has been quoting, five to 10% is a lot and it's more than maybe they need to. And so they tend to bleed a lot of money by doing that. And um, we've seen some protocols basically handle this problem by spinning up their own auction mechanisms, um, like Maker, for example. Maker has, um, I believe, uh, a reverse Dutch auction. So basically the, the money that they, uh, the, the price that they charge um, to liquidate this collateral basically starts low and then it increases every block. And, and so this is at the opposite on, at opposite end of the spectrum, right? So where Compound says, uh, I must liquidate this in one block. And so I'm willing to pay a lot for this 
or I'm willing to accept a low price, you could also say on the other end. Uh, Maker says, you know, I'm fine. Uh, you know, what Maker actually does is they only bring uh, Oracle updates on chain with one hour delay. So the Oracle update comes on chain, but it can only be used for liquidation after one hour. So they actually say, hey, borrowers, we're going to give you a big fat warning. Your position is underwater now, right now. Uh, and if you like, if you don't actually top it up within the hour, then we'll start liquidating you. But even then, they have this this increasing price auction where they give the borrower even more time, right? Basically, to to top it up. And sometimes transactions take uh, or like that takes longer to uh, liquidate in Maker. So Maker is a protocol that's very borrower friendly. And then um, a protocol like Aave or Compound is much more lender friendly, I would say. And so you have these different sides of this of the spectrum, and it's really a design choice, you know, because they compete in the market. And I think it's TVD what what works better and what's ultimately preferred by the market. Also, the only thing I'd add is there there is a trade off here too, where in the maker design, when you have that hour price delay and then the slower liquidation process, um, you need to have higher like collateral requirements because if you do have a kind of worst case scenario where a price is trending in a negative direction um in the maker system you need more of a buffer because it takes longer to perform liquidation mm -hmm. and so you need more higher collateral requirements are generally required there um and it also the the kind of maker design wouldn't work very well uh for higher volatility assets like shit coins right so yes. there's this sort of trade-off space um, that you're alluding to where you could uh, run this slower kind of reverse dust touch auction um, to more fit, to bleed less money, mm -hmm. but you you know can't support higher vol assets and you probably have higher collateral requirements uh, there too. So yeah. big trade-off space. Definitely. And so why do we care about I guess MEV in general, right? So um, the by the way, the connection that I would draw between MEV and, and OEV is that MEV is basically money that privileged parties in any system can extract from other participants of that system through asymmetry of power or information. And um, it comes always from a conflict uh, between different preferences, two people wanting the same thing and then basically bidding to that centralized party in order to, to get that preference ultimately. And so in the context of MEV, that's the validator, right? So if two people want to make the same trade, then the two people compete on the fee that they pay to the validator and hence bid up the price and so the money goes to validators. And so how does it, how does it fit in the context of, of an Oracle update? So uh, when the Oracle transaction actually goes uh, on chain, then the, the liquidations basically become unlocked, right? And the, the transaction that's immediately following that Oracle update then is the one that can capture that slippage limit, uh, that, that, that slippage tolerance in value effectively, or the difference between that and kind of the price at which they can internalize their trade. Um, and when you kind of let that unchecked, uh, the, this ability for validators to to really like extract different amounts of value from their blocks, then what you end up with is a basically possible centralization spiral in the system. And for some systems, that's okay. Right? In many cases, we solve actually MEV through centralization. Um, 
in in like many real world systems but in in crypto that's explicitly not what we want right we want to have this really decentralized base layer because that's like the the validator layer is the root of trust in ethereum and we want ethereum to become the root of trust in the global kind of financial and economic system in the future and so that's why we put so much emphasis on keeping that validator layer decentralized um and yeah, the company that I work for, Flashbots and many others, um, I would say have done a lot in order to, um, in the first step, keep the validator layer decentralized by making kind of the same value blocks available to all the validators through techniques like MEV boost. Um, and uh, I mean, but what we're seeing right now is, for example, that um, a lot of the centralization is, is basically accumulating at the block building layer. So right now there, there's one block builder that's building, uh, I think 70% of blocks. And this is also something that, that we predicted, um, because there's, there's a lot of kind of network effect and scale economies and kind of rich get richer effects in, in MEV and in block building. And so if you look at the block, block building layer now, and you say, wow, it's looking very centralized. then this is effectively what was prevented on the validator layer by introducing systems like MEV boost, but in the block building layer, it's kind of more isolate, isolated and compartmentalized. And we are kind of, it's more solvable in some ways. Right. Yeah. This has um, been my understanding since we did our end game episode with Vitalik, where centralization in the block building layer has more optionality and checks upon the block builders than we do with validators. Once, once centralization happens at the validator level, it's kind of a one-way street. Um, kind of hard to go and come back from that. Uh, but with centralization in the block builder layer, there's a lot of checks and balances, like proposer builder separation is, is one of these things. Um, I kind of want to zoom all the way back out and talk about like the highest level pattern that I see happening here, um, especially once we extend DeFi to becoming, you know, the global financial system. You know, that's why I'm here in crypto. That's why many of us are here in crypto. Uh, and so say these markets aren't growing just by like 10x or 100x, but like are like a thousand x bigger. Like, and we have applications like Aave, like Compound, like Maker um, becoming some of the foundations of borrowing and lending for the entire globe. This is this uh, Oracle extractable value in the in its current form without a solution here uh, it would be a transfer of value from these applications and from the users and customers of these applications towards the infra level. So it's like the infra level taxing the application level. Applications are leaking value to the infra. And Hazo, I think was something that you kind of alluded to is like when you do that, you're kind of pressing the gas on the centralization uh, of the infra level. Uh, and so with higher level solutions, which I'm, I think we're about to get into with what uh, is being built here at Oval, with higher level solutions, applications can actually stop leaking value and start, start retaining more of their value. And then the infra level uh, is a little bit just more like streamlined. It's just like smoother because there's less... Uh, just like random volatile volatility of like a hundred ETH MEV blocks being going on, and everything's a little bit more stable and, and dependable. This this is my understanding of the highest level of patterns. Heart, uh, does that vibe? Does that check out? Anything you want to add there? Yeah, that totally check out checks out. And I think where you're you're going with this, David, is like on us on us more of like the business side, the business strategy side, or like application revenue side. So Hasu's perspective, you know, he wants to kill MEV because he worries about the centralization risks it creates, which I completely agree with. 
Um, but I think there's another interesting byproduct here where if you can harness MEV within your application, uh, you can use it as a revenue stream to do useful things. Um, and I'm of the opinion that just the way this all works, applications will leak MEV. There's way, ways to design them so they leak less, but eliminating it is going to be impossible. Um, so if we, you know, being big picture here, design tools, order flow auctions, that we're going to get into, if we can design tools to capture that MEV, we can not only decrease the centralization risks um, that Hasi was referring to, but we can also use that revenue stream to build business models um, and do useful things. And, and I guess the analogy here, and it's a little bit dangerous because I think people, um, some people have controversial views um, in TradFi on payment for order flow. Um, but if you think what Robinhood has done in the stock market is it used to be that brokers would have this order flow and kind of throw it out there for high frequency trading firms to, to, to use. Um, and they were effectively like leaking, um, at revenue that those high frequency trading firms were capturing. Um, and Robinhood, I don't exactly like all the ways they do this, but conceptually Robinhood said, okay, actually we're going to auction off this order flow and use that revenue to run our business so that we can offer free trading to users. Um, and I think conceptually, if you think about DeFi protocols doing similar things with maybe like better rules, more auditable rules, more transparency, um, you can actually get to some pretty interesting business models where Mev Capture can drive sustainable long-term protocols that do useful things. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree with that. Um, I I would say we de <laughs> we definitely don't only care about the decentralization of Ethereum. Um, it's uh, it's very important because without the decentralization of Ethereum, the whole experiment basically comes to stop. Like. We, we will like there's still another kind of gambling technology right that's built on top of it but um the especially kind of the base layer of ethereum is is very uh, important to fight for um but that said so i mean flashbots has a, a triple vision uh, or a three-part vision for for a good reason the, the first part is to illuminate the dark forest and you can see this through for example orderflow.art which is this really cool visualization of how your order, like any order is routed through the MEV supply chain, like who touches it, who exactly contributed to its eventual filling and like it getting on chain. Um, and then um, the democratize access to MEV, that's the second part. Uh, that's for validators that they all basically get access to the same MEV. But the final part is um, distribute value back to users. And this is exactly where MEV share and oval are coming in because we have this vision that all MEV should be returned to the parties who created. Um, because you, I mean, you can look at this from a few different angles. So on the one hand, uh, all of the applications are in competition with each other, of course, to it, like if they leave so much money on the table that really belongs to their users and uh, or that to them and they could like reinvest it in the business and make the experience better for users than applications that don't internalize the MEV will eventually like to themselves or their users will eventually be outcompeted. Um, but even more importantly, I think every, like when we look at these crazy numbers, how much money is lost to MEV every year, um, like billions of dollars, this is money that 
somebody lost right at the other end of it so this is money that's straight coming out of the pocket of uh someone making like a swap on a decentralized exchange or someone providing liquidity or someone uh borrowing uh on uh, uh on a lending market and getting liquidated right so there's actually a real counterparty behind all of these and so if you want to build better systems then we have to build systems that basically are robust to MEV uh, in the sense that they like expose less of it, but the, 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 the ones that they still expose, they internalize it back to users through employing techniques like MEV share and, and over. And I will add, as the industry of DeFi has progressed, it is a story of efficiencies and capital efficiency and like less leakage over this has just been the arc that DeFi is on like this isn't something brand new just all applications are innovating on how to be more capitally efficient how to best serve their customers and this is just like another milestone on that arc of evolution of DeFi. and and with that as the context maybe we'll we can actually get into some of the specifics of the oval mechanism and how we are actually doing this how we are actually uh, returning uh, value or keeping value in the applications in users hands and kind of like stopping nipping some mev in the bud uh is kind of maybe how i, I will frame it and so Hart, i'll throw this one to you can you just kind of explain the oval mechanism and and what it does yeah absolutely so Oval is um, a mechanism for OEV capture or uh, capturing this specific type of Oracle created MEV. Um, Oval is not an Oracle. It uses Chainlink or uh, Chainlink price updates. Um, but what it essentially does is say, hey, uh, liquidators, searchers, if you want to use this Chainlink price update, if you want to be the first one to use it, you have to participate in an auction. And the winner of that auction gets the first right uh, to use this Chainlink price update for a specific protocol. Um, and so really all Oval's doing is saying, uh, Chainlink updates come in, let's run an auction on them. Um, and we run an auction for each protocol. So there's a different auction running for Aave or, and for Compound. And that's so that we can actually understand exactly how much um, OEV is created for Aave or for Compound. Um, and we use uh, Flashbot's MevShare infrastructure to run this auction process and to actually guarantee or enforce that uh, the, the, the searcher that paid the most in the auction, um, that their money actually gets returned back to the protocol. Seems like a relatively simple mechanism. This is an opt-in mechanism by lending applications like Aave, Compound, Maker, for example. So these things need to elect to use Oval, correct? Correct. You can think of this as like a bolt-on for Chainlink. So a bolt -on Oval, for Chainlink. Okay. it like wraps a Chainlink price update. So right now, um, Aave and Compound and many, many other DeFi protocols have an address where they're like, give me the ETH USD price feed from Chainlink. And uh, what Oval does is says, okay, we have a contract that looks like Chainlink, but only lets you use that Chainlink price update if you participated in this auction um, for a very short window. And after that short window is done, then it now looks exactly like Chainlink. It just passes through. So it's, it's kind of just a gate that enforces this OEV auction happens for a very short period of time before just defaulting back to Chainlink. So all DeFi protocols have to do is swap a single address via governance uh, to kind of bolt on this oval 
uh, intermediary and begin extracting OEB. So it's like an, an auction module that's being appended onto the Oracle price updates that Chainlink is providing DeFi. And, and hard, this makes sense as to how you brought up the uh, Robinhood analogy, where you know at one phase in Robinhood's life, they were just casting off their users' order flow into the wild and then suffering worse execution for their customers because whoever could do the high-frequency trading would get there first. And instead, they opted in for an auction mechanism instead in lieu of that so it's like this little like waiting room before the free market happens for an auction to discover the price before their users were able to actually like get, get the better price and they would get a better price as a result and in, in this analogy aves are the users compound is the users maker dow is the users and instead of just having uh, access to their liquidations being free for any and all MEV bots that come first and execute it suboptimally. Instead, there is a short window of time for market price to be discovered, a fair price to be discovered, and then that value is retained by the uh, lending applications. Is this correct? Yeah, exactly right. So um, that analogy totally holds. And if we go back to uh, the kind of slippage analogy where we're saying, hey, this liquidation is going to have a a fixed 10 percent um, liquidation bonus. We're going to run an auction that says, "Okay, what does it actually cost? What will people pay here?" And people say, "Okay, I'll, I'll actually only pay. I'll, I'll buy this collateral for a one percent discount, and nine percent gets captured and rooted back to the protocol." So we are using the auction to create the market clearing price for the right price to perform the liquidation in these lending markets. So this this solves the problem of some of these lending markets not knowing not knowing what the fair price of their collateral is, whether it's a large supply of ether or a supply of shit coins. They don't know the the governance parameters around collateral in Ave Compound Maker, et cetera. They don't know what the market price is, so they have to basically give themselves worst execution in order to protect themselves. And so this is like a best execution module appended onto their liquidations, which ultimately flows back into the collateral that's liquidated at a better price from their customers, correct? Yeah, I like this best execution module that I'm going to use that. Um, you make me the bankless. Hasu said it really well. Uh, you go back and you think about uh, on Uniswap, I'm wanting to buy a shitcoin. Uh, prices all over the place. So I set a wide slip, slippage limit uh, just to guarantee I get a fill or I set it tight to keep the price more price guarantee. I don't know. So lending protocols are in the same scenario. They really need to sell this collateral, uh, but they don't know how cheap they need to sell it. And so by running an auction and going through this order flow auction for the right to perform this liquidation, we're able to use market forces and competition to precisely set that liquidation bonus to the market clearing price. I have some, I have some follow on thoughts to that. So <laughs> this is one of my favorite topics for years and it's very hard to like nerds my people on it. So now is my time. Okay. So give me, give me like my <laughs> I was two minutes. Born for this. <laughs> but so both you actually, so we talk about oracles, which is funny because like both setting your fee, your, your fee, how, how much gray you basically want to want to bid per gas and how much slippage you want to set. Those are both Oracle problems in themselves. So they, they are both problems that are basically you as a user, you have no idea what you should, you should put, and they are very hard to parameterize. And so in the example of a, of a 
uh, of, of a regular transaction, right? This is the, the fee estimation problem. And for a regular transfer, this is not too hard to say because you can just look at, okay, what's like the lowest fee that still got into the last block, basically. And you use that as your Oracle. Okay. So, and then you parameterize your trade like that. But once there's basically contest between different preferences over the same state. So for example, multiple people trading in the same Uniswap pool and somebody like the one person's trade might make another person's trade invalid because it's now beyond their slippage tolerance, right? Um, now all of a sudden parameterizing uh, your transaction fee is a very difficult problem. And so it, it basically spills over into the slippage tolerance. The slippage tolerance is basically an extension of the transaction fee. Um, and I mean, what happens here is that you have no idea like how much you're paying for your transaction right now. So it's basically is your fee plus your slippage. Like you can basically add those and they become in any kind of DEX trade, they become your actual transaction fee that you're willing to pay, but you don't know even how much you're actually bidding because that depends on like other parties in the block as well. And so this is where an order flow auction comes in that runs basically, you know, at block building, at, at block building speed as well, because this is it, it, what it really does. It, it gives you this Oracle for how much you should bid in order to get into the block. And so, yeah, that's the connection between that's the connection basically between OFAs. Like they reveal what is the correct fee to set across all of your parameters, which is like the transaction fee and the slippage tolerance together. Uh, and then they get you into the block at the cheapest possible price when they work, when they have like enough bidding taking place. Yeah, well, to keep going on this, right? So the nerd sniping of it, the um, the liquidators in this system are uh, off-chain actors that are uh, that have full visibility into all these costs and fees. And then through forces of competition, they're figuring out who's going to serve you the best price. So we're able to utilize uh, off-chain actors to know things that the protocol itself doesn't know at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's pretty cool. The off-chain actors, they're just the market. And the market knows a lot. The market is the aggregate of all uh, information. And so it's a place where just like the, the aggregate knowledge of the market can actually become to be expressed and then leveraged by the DeFi applications. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, while we're talking about parameterization, um, there's interesting knock-on effects here too. So lending markets like Aave, they can't easily onboard like shitcoin collateral because uh, the, the price moves too much or whatever. It could create bad debt for the system. Um, but you could imagine where they onboard uh, shitcoin collateral with like a potential 40% liquidation bonus, like something really big that if you had to pay that every time, it would be incredibly painful. Um, but you can now do it safely because you have a huge potential bonus, but you have market forces that actually means you're never going to pay that. You're going to pay the market clearing price. And so we've inserted a new tool that gives us real-time information to parameterize some of the important parameters within a lending market like Aave. Uh, and we can use that tool to actually like onboard new collateral and kind of add new features. Right. So the net effect of this is that um, blue chip collateral in uh, systems like Aave Compound Maker, uh, Ether will probably be able to achieve even better 
um, collateral factors. It will be even more efficient to use Ether. And this will be true for uh, for all the collateral that's currently in there. There's more efficiency, more capital efficiency for all uh, capital assets. And then also the hurdle, the requirement for actually being onboarded into Aave gets easier so we can actually extend the long tail into further, less liquid um, collaterals uh, simply because we have better market clearing uh, mechanisms in order to enable these things. Which is to the yeah. net effect of Aave, just like a, a increased revenue for the application and increased um, pr- a better product for its customers. Yeah, they have a they have a useful new tool in their toolbox uh, to make Aave more efficient and support more collateral types. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming, and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. Are you launching a token? Is it already live? How are you managing the legal and tax obligations for providing token grants to your team? It's no secret that token management gets complicated. Between learning all the legal language and tax obligations in every country that your team is in, token grant management can feel like an obstacle course, but it doesn't have to. That's where Toku steps in. Toku provides practical tools to handle token grants, allowing for effective oversight of token distributions and payroll tax compliance for employees, contractors, advisors, and investors. They also handle tax withholding through their real-time tax calculations that can be done by Toku or integrated into any payroll EOR providers in any jurisdiction. Toku is a trusted provider of Protocol Labs, DYDX Foundation, Mina Protocol, and many more. Get started for free and make token compensation simple at toku.com bankless. Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. Driving real-world use cases like mobile payments and mobile DeFi, and with Opera Minipay as one of the fastest-growing Web3 wallets, Celo is seeing a meteoric rise with over 300 million transactions and 1.5 million monthly active addresses. And now, Celo is looking to come home to Ethereum as a Layer 2. Optimism, Polygon, Matter Labs, and Arbitrum have all thrown their hats in the ring for the Celo Layer 2 to build upon their stacks. Why the competition? The Celo Layer 2 will bring huge advantages like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability secured by Ethereum validators, and one-block finality. What does that all mean for you? With Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low, and you can even pay for gas natively using ERC-20 tokens, sending crypto to phone numbers across wallets using Social Connect. But Celo is a community-governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo forums, follow Celo on Twitter, and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum. Hazu, we use, uh, Hart talked about how we use um, some of the MEV share infrastructure in the background. We actually, we, we've talked about um, the pattern here. We actually haven't talked about so much of the parameters. Maybe you can kind of go into the specifics of like, if you pop open the hood of this system, uh, what does it look like in the background? Like, how does this thing work? MEV share? Yeah, the, the, the part of MEV share that um, uh, Oval taps into. Yeah, so MEV share is what I would say, what I would call an order flow auction protocol. 
So it's uh, it, it consists it introduces one new party that we don't typically talk about, and it's called the MEV share node. And um, it has advised a protocol because it allows basically for OFAs or like applications to to be built on top by wallets by by applications like Oval that then kind of extend the service to the lending markets. And it's very customizable. So you can basically customize it across two different dimensions. Um, one is the privacy. So a lot of uh, in MEV, it's, it's a lot about privacy, right? Since we said it's about in basically value that can be extracted by having you know some kind of asymmetry of information. So how much information you reveal and who you reveal it to is a very big lever in MEV. And so in MEV Share, you can customize exactly which parts of your transactions are revealed to the bidders who are the searchers. And uh, there's a kind of general trade-off here where um, it, if you reveal too much, then you can be front-run off-chain. Uh, for example, you know re you reveal your intent to trade a certain asset, but then somebody just buys up the asset kind of outside and just they, they sandwich you basically outside of the auction, right? Um, but when you reveal nothing, then you leave it you leave a lot of guesswork to the searchers basically to guess what your intent is, and they may not be very close in their guess. And um, and so you you want to like find the exact like sweet spot between like revealing you know uh, some details, but not so much that that you can be front run. And it really depends on the exact application and asset that we're talking about. And this is why we leave this choice to the applications that build on top of the protocol. And the second is the for any surplus value that's created. So for the money that's that's coming in from the bidders, uh, how is that distributed? And so this is also the the choice of Oval. So between uh, the uh, you know Oval and the lending market and the block builder and like any other party that they want to specify, uh, who who do they want to send the value to? That's being created. So. Um, that also affects kind of the dynamics of the auction. And so, um, yeah, you can basically create an order flow auction. You can parameterize uh, it kind of across these dimensions. And then what happens is in a very simple flow, so like a, a, um, a transaction comes into the MEV node and then the MEV node uh, reveals, like selectively reveals information to searchers that they can that they can access. And any searcher can access this because it's permissionless. And then the searchers basically send back their bits and they very often they will be kind of guessing based because they cannot actually see the full intent of the transaction. They can only, for example, see, okay, this is like a certain Uniswap pool. So this is like EFUSDC or something, but they don't know whether the person is buying or selling or how much. And so they, they, what they basically do, what is the right strategy for searchers is to submit not just one uh, trade intent, but submit basically like a whole order book, if you will, right? So they would basically submit, okay, if they want to buy this much, here's what I would, uh, here's what I would want. If they buy like this much, here's what I would want. If they want to sell, here's my bid. And if they want to sell more, here's my bid, right? So they, every search just submits basically their own order book. And then inside the MEV node, you have what is basically a matching engine, you know, same as on an exchange. So you have the, you have now all of the order books from all of the searches laid on top of each other. And you have the one, so these are all of the bits, and then you have the ask from uh, from the user, and you just match basically the most, the best bit against the user's ask, 
you grab them into a bundle and you forward it to block builders. Um, and then it goes into the block uh, and kind of the value, like part of that bundle is also the redistribution of the value, like who it goes to, right? And so that's being forwarded to, to the builder. And I think like the top X bundles are forwarded and then the builder can still choose like which ones they take, but usually they take the one that pays them the most, right? And so, um, yeah, very roughly speaking, uh, that's how it works. The pattern that I'm seeing here, I'm, I'm just going to go back to uh, my line from earlier, is that um, the, the cool thing about uh, MEV is that we once thought it was this massive problem. And one of the patterns that I've seen over time is actually mechanisms are allowing us to leverage the, this problem into market clearing forces. And Hazu, when you say when you tell me that like in, each individual searcher will uh, dump an entire order book into this node, to me, that's like saying one of these many thousands of searchers out there are taking their entire view on the market, placing that into a codified uh, order book, depositing this order book into a central clearing entity, which is this node that you were talking about in MEV share. These orders get matched up, everything clears, and all of a sudden we have market clearing forces happening in a very short amount of time, uh, very, very quickly. And so what was once this very toxic centralizing system that was liquidating people at suboptimal prices and was creating centralization forces in our infrastructure has instead uh, resulted in uh, just uh, super efficient markets, which has always kind of been like the sci-fi vision for DeFi, I think. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Hazu, when we talk about um, one one node, maybe more nodes, a few nodes, uh, collecting all of the market information um, sounds centralized. Uh, is there like a decentralization of MevShare Mev conversation or of the infra that makes this whole system happen? Uh, what's this look like? Yeah, for sure. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the MEV share node is a new centralized uh, actor in the system. So I think in this case, it's not a problem because the searchers, like it doesn't introduce any new trust assumptions in the sense that Flashbots is already a block builder and a relay. Um, and so effectively, everybody already trusts us with, you know, all of this information. So for us in particular, it's, it's doesn't add any trust assumptions. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, we want to decentralize all of our products. So from Builder, Relay, MEV Share, um, and that's, that is the vision, um, behind Suave. And so you did this really right. great episode with Phil, Dayan and, and Andrew Miller, where you, you dove into this and for anyone who hasn't seen it, I would strongly recommend it because it's such a great intro, but the, the gist is, I would say that Suave is a is a platform that enables new uh, primitives, um, in particular, uh, the ability to write uh, private smart contracts uh, and have credible off-chain uh, computation. And so, for example, when you look at an order flow auction, you see, hey, these are exactly like two things that it uses, right? It, it uses privacy, but it solves it basically through centralization. So we just send it to a centralized server and we hope that the server doesn't leak the information or like not more of the, than the information that it's supposed to leak. And well, it's also, it's running off chain and nobody can validate that the, like we are, we say that, uh, you know, the MEV share node runs certain code and it's open source on our GitHub, right? But do you actually know that this is what we're running? No, you don't, right? And so, one of the beautiful things about Ethereum is uh, anybody can see uh, the code behind a smart contract and know that this is exactly what the virtual machine ex executes, right? 
And so uh, this is basically what Swarth does. It introduces a new virtual machine that can do private computation and has, has private storage for, for private data, but it can also you can also write uh, code as smart contracts that could otherwise only execute uh, on an off-chain server. And when you put those things together, the off-chain, the, the credible off-chain computation and the decentralized privacy, then you get access, you, like you unlock a whole new part of kind of the tech tree uh, for crypto and MEV in particular. Um, and uh, so where we eventually want to go with this is, is decentralized block building. Right. So we want kind of the whole auction, like intense coming in from users and like the whole shebang about how that's that's basically turned into a block and, and eventually executed on chain. We want to decentralize the whole of that. Um, but for something like MEV Share, this is actually really easy to see how it's one of the first things that benefits from Swerve because all you do is like you run the same code, but you run it instead of on our centralized server, you run it on Swerve. And all of a, all of a sudden, you no longer need to trust flashboards as a centralized party um, to run the code that we say and to keep your information private because now you basically delegate all of that trust to a decentralized network. Mm -hmm. So the uh, if listeners are curious into going down that rabbit hole, Hazard just pointed to to uh, the the Bankless episode about Swap that we did. Uh, we sh I don't think it would be a mistake to rehash all of that here, but I think this is where that part of the conversation leads. Um, heart, go for it. Yeah, no, no. To add to that, first of all, that episode is really, really good. And, um, I do think of like, as said, MevShare is a protocol for building for order flow auctions, um, with some points of centralization. I look at Suave, Suave is a lot more than that, but I look at Suave as going to be a decentralized protocol for order flow auctions. Mm. And I'm actually really excited about it. Um, the one other point I want to make on the oval side um, the way we've architected this, uh, the, the trust assumptions Oval introduces, uh, I think are just pretty brilliant, um, because the, the way it works is the absolute worst thing. If like MevShare had rogue code that was stealing the Mev or Oval decided to send the Mev to a different address or, or anything like that, the worst case from a lending protocol's perspective is that they don't get the Mev that they weren't otherwise getting. So it's like you're just back. The worst to where you case started. is table table stakes. The worst case is table stakes. Um, and the other answer here, just because there have been some questions around uh, centralization concerns um, in the oval design, even if the MevShare node goes down um, or the oval oval node goes down, that infrastructure all breaks. Um, as soon as this short auction uh, passes. Uh, the oval contract on chain on Ethereum just passes through and lets you read chainlink prices. So it can't censor chainlink prices. It can't prevent liquidations. Um, you're, it really is like worst case is sta table stakes to what lending protocols have now. All you're doing is inserting this short auction that uh, if it were to go rogue would steal the money you didn't get before. So um, it's like a really elegant bolt on um, you know, best execution module, as you put it, um, that doesn't, um, it, it does have a point of centralization, but the fallback is super elegant. Uh, you're just back to where you started. You talk about the, this short auction. How long is it? It's a parameter of the protocol. They can set it to what they want. Um, and this gets a little bit technical in terms of like, why, why would it be more than one block? 
Um, and the answer is not every block builder uh, or not every block builder is connected to MevShare. And so you don't necessarily have complete coverage on every slot. Uh, so you could have basically by our math and Hossi will know this better. You have like 90% of, of blocks are mined by builders connected to MevShare. Um, so if you don't have your, if your auction happens to land in a block that is not uh, mined or built by MevShare, a validator picks a block that's not coming from MevShare, you might not capture your um, OEV, but yeah, gets a little uh, more technical. Otherwise it's one block. It's supposed to be one block. Yeah, 90% of the time, you're gonna happen the same price update uh, or the same block that um, the chain link update would get mined if you didn't use Oval. Yeah, and the nice thing about MEV share is that it, it doesn't actually increase uh, the latency of transactions that go on chain because it runs during the one block window. Um, and yeah, so as Hart was saying, as, uh, in the positive or like the normal case, you don't incur any uh, additional penalty. So this is really more of a fail safe mechanism, right? So just in case kind of either of the two nodes is offline, then you want to have some kind of fall, fallback so that the, the transaction can still go on chain. Cool, cool, understood. Um, so Hart, I think this kind of brings us to the last bit of conversation, which did we looked at the technical conversation under the hood, the economic conversation as to the incentives, as to why protocols will adopt this. But I think now we have to get into the BD conversation because ultimately uh, things don't move unless humans like shake hands over Telegram or in discords or whatever. Uh, and so you actually need protocols to adopt this system. Uh, how's that going? Going well. Um, the we, we put a proposal up to Ave. Uh, to to adopt Oval in a very, very limited way. Um, so one of the advantages of Aave, um, their standard markets are, you know, all interlinked and they want to be very, very cautious of changing anything because there's billions of dollars at risk. Um, but they also have Aave V3 isolated markets, which are siloed and separated from the rest of the system. Um, so we made a proposal to integrate Oval in two uh, Aave V3 markets. Um, that have about $10 million of total TVL, which is 0.1% of the total Aave TVL. And it's a pretty cool way for uh, Aave to experiment with OEV capture in a very safe, low-risk way um, and get comfortable, get familiar with it, um, and potentially roll it out to the broader protocol, where I think, again, if it rolled out to the broader protocol, I think Aave would be more than doubling their revenue. Um, they'd be earning another $25 million bucks a year um, type thing. Um, same with compound. And then of course there's all these other, I, I, we, we talk about Aave a lot on this podcast just because it's a good example, but there's all these other DeFi protocols, um, that we're really excited that are using chain price updates that are leaking MEV. Um, and we have this really easy integration that we've been chatting with and really excited to integrate. Interesting. I want to actually, um, go down a side quest that's parallel to this, I think. Uh, Hazo, I think you might be familiar with this. Maybe, maybe both of you are. Um, Sorella Labs and their Uniswap V4 hook. Uh, maybe I can set this up and Hazo, you can take uh, the rest of it. It's a very similar mechanism, although it's not at all to do with uh, Oracle extractable value, uh, but it has to do with um, 
uh, impermanent loss in Uniswap, which is now being, I think, rebranded to LVR, which is an equally bad name, but whatever. Um, and so, like, you know, Uniswap LPs are getting uh, squeezed by uh, sex DEX arbitrage. So when, like, Binance updates its price, that eventually turns into MEV on DEXs. And then Uniswap LPs are just having this arbitraged out. And something that Ludwig at Sorella Labs is building is this hook on Uniswap V4, which is kind of just like oval, a gate for liquidity. Uh, and if you want to access the liquidity in Uniswap V4 that uh, that liquidity providers have deposited through this gate, then you have to operate by the rules of this gate. And the rules of this gate do something very, very similar to what Hart was talking about here at Oval. Maybe you can talk about just like how this works with a little bit more clarity than what I just gave, but also talk about the pattern and how we're seeing this kind of being extrapolated into different contexts. Yeah, so you're you're exactly right. So it's it's the, the exact same pattern. And I think the pattern is what's most interesting um, to understand. So if we kind of go back to what we said earlier, so a user wants to trade a token, they don't know what fee to set, they don't know what slippage tolerance to set. So you kind of have this Oracle problem of like how much to bid basically to the validator and you don't even know how much you're bidding. And so this, the very same problem the LPs also have because so they have a price and maybe the price is, is kind of the market price, but then 12 seconds pass and now all of a sudden they're still quoting that price from 12 seconds ago, right? Because of it's an AMM, the price didn't move unless someone trades against it. Um, or they kind of updated manually, right? But they, so they are quoting this outdated price. Um, and now somebody can, can trade against them. And, you know, whether it's an Oracle or whether it's a, whether it's a liquidity pool or it's a user making a DEX trade, if you're, if you're accepting a certain price, then and somebody else can see that intent, then they will always push you to the worst possible price. Uh, and so that's what happens in arbitrage. And I mean, arbitrage, like the LVR problem is is a problem that's like 20 times bigger than than even the Oracle problem. So this is like a huge, a huge problem, I would say. Um, and yeah, so the, but the very same, same insight that over users can be exactly applied also to liquidity pools. Um, so you basically put like, as you were calling it, you, you, you kind of have two ways of doing it. One, you put a gate and it basically says in order to earn the right to trade on this pool oval style, uh, you have to pay me. And so we run an auction. And so you basically unlock the right to do this. The other way is to basically the pool, there's also an auction, but instead of earning the right to trade, it like increases basically the transaction fee to the, the fee that goes to the LPs in the pool. So it makes that variable. And so when it knows that there's like a large basically demand to trade in the pool, then it would increase the it would increase the fee to capture more of the MEV back to the LPs who are in the pool. So I'm not familiar which model exactly uh, Sorella uses or if they found uh, a third way. But yeah, I think the insight is basically to, to use some kind of mechanism, some kind of auction that discovers uh, basically the price at which the LPs should quote to the market. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go, go ahead and hard to say something. No, I just think the Sorella solution, it is using the gating mechanism. I mean, again, we should have Ludwig and all them talk, but um, uh, it is a very cool, elegant solution that says, Hey, um, we know there's like sex, sex arbitrage that's getting leaked here. 
So you just, if you want to trade against this pool, uh, you got to pay us. And that goes back to the, the LPs. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for that to, uh, to get deployed too. So one last conversation here. Um, so, uh, we have oval and this gate, we have, uh, this pattern that we were seeing applied on to Uniswap with V4, with, um, the project that we just brought up, um, uh, Sorella labs, um, but each of these are taking a cut, right? Like, because come on, like we are rational economic actors. We want our upside. Uh, I'm assuming there's a cut that's part of the whole oval process. Is that correct, Hart? Yeah, there is. I mean, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. Like Hasu said at the beginning, um, MEV should go back to the protocol that created it or the, the, the source that created it. Um, and we very much believe that. So this MEV that we're capturing should go back to Ave or Compound and they can or mostly go back to Avian Compound and they can use it to say, hey, uh, we're going to keep it for revenue for the protocol. We're going to give it back to token holders. We're going to uh, reimburse the guy that got liquidated. We're going to make uh, transaction costs fee free. We're going to pay everybody's gas costs, whatever they want to do. That's their call. Um, and then I think the infrastructure that extracts that MEV also deserves a fair share um, for the work of building the inf building and maintaining the infrastructure to do so. Um, and so that's that's the business model for Oval, um, where we would retain um, our share uh, for the infrastructure costs. And the other thing I'd add is there's other infrastructure costs besides us. Um, there's Flashbots, MevShare, um, Suave in the future. And importantly, in the case of um, Oracle updates, uh, there's also like Chainlink or your Oracle provider. And... Um, one of the things I'm excited about uh, is using this as a sustainable way to pay for Oracle infrastructure as well, uh, because it's not cheap. Chainlink is spending millions of dollars a year in gas fees supporting their price feeds um, as a sort of public service. And uh, this, this is something that long run is actually a risk to Aave and Compound because like, it, it's not currently sustainable. Um, Chainlink needs to get paid. Ave compound maker, maybe not maker, uh, are consuming Chainlink Oracle prices. And Chainlink is just giving this out to DeFi for free. I'm assuming they make money on that somehow. Um, maybe not? That's complicated. That's a good question to ask Chainlink. Um, but the price feeds are permissionless. Anyone can access these price feeds for free. Um, so, so Chainlink uh, itself, or and you know, insert your generalized Oracle provider here, also needs to be a part of this process of uh, achieving some sort of take rate in order to make themselves a sustainable business. Otherwise, they go away. Yeah, I agree. And like again, Chainlink has many different kind of products and business lines, and they they do charge or have fees in other uh, circumstances. But the core product that you know supports most of DeFi. Uh, like their ETH USD price feed, it's freely accessible um, and DeFi is built on top of it. And figuring out a way to make that be sustainable um, seems like, seems necessary. Right. Totally. Totally. Uh, Hart, Hazu, I have turned, learned a ton in this conversation. Is there any stone left unturned or maybe just future questions that you have or future topics that I think that you guys might think are next in this conversation? Uh, maybe if we were to resume this conversation in like a year or so, maybe what are some ideas that uh, you would hope would have answers or just any future conversations that uh, you think spawns out of this one? Uh, Hazu, I'll start with you. <laughs> I need to think about this. Can Hart go first? Hart, you first. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an easy one. I mean, how does sure. this work on layer twos? 
Mm. Uh, like, what does the MEV supply chain on layer twos look like? Um, what are the types? What's the type of like Oracle or Oracle related MEV that gets leaked on layer twos? And there's actually a whole slew of MEV that gets leaked by uh, perpetual exchanges, like perp exchanges, de decentralized perps, um, and ways that I think that they could be made much more efficient by um, using auction-like structures to price their trades. Um, so that's where my mind goes. And we, we've actually done a lot of work and a lot of research on how Oval would work on L2s. Um, and I'm not enough for this podcast, but I think it's a super fascinating topic and uh, I think it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think if we go, if you come back in one year, I would be very interested to kind of just do a checkup on how much MEV is still being leaked at the application layer. Uh, how, how much basically extra money is, is leaked by lending protocols, but also we talked about LPs, right? So for me, that would be interesting if that, that paradigm that, that, uh, with the gate basically unlocking kind of certain actions on chain through an auction, uh, if that's taking hold also in the deck space, um, and then for sure, as hard was saying, as more and more activity goes to layer two, so how can we how can we import some of that same paradigm basically to, to the layer twos? The layer twos today all have centralized sequencers and they don't have much of an MEV supply chain to speak of. So they all have a kind of shadow MEV supply chain that's kind of, you know, like co-located around the sequencer, like, but like in a kind of uncontrolled way that doesn't benefit the users at all. It doesn't return any, doesn't even return any money to the sequencer. Um, nor can really be leveraged to build any kind of applications on top, like, like order flow auctions yet. So I would say, um, there's, there's some kind of ground infrastructure that needs to be created. And then I think, uh, a lot of this technology can be scaled to layer twos. And it will be very interesting to see if, if, you know, if it looks the same or if it looks different and if it looks different, like in what ways. Beautiful guys. I think we have a long roadmap of content ahead of us. There's a lot of juice left to squeeze out of these conversations, a lot of juice left to keep in the DeFi apps. Uh, Hart, Hazu, thank you so much for coming on and explaining this part of the, uh, the DeFi world to us. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. Hart, if people are just interested in learning more about Oval, where should they go? Yeah, so um, Oval is an UMA product. Go to UMA.xyz and you can read all about it. Um, and then Twitter, it's at UMA protocol. Um, yeah. Guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Bankless Nation, you know the deal. Crypto is risky. DeFi is risky. Hopefully, it's becoming a little bit less risky, but you could still lose what you put in. We are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you are with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot. <laughs>